Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. song was called Horrors of the Black Museum by Jimmy Madden from the album Hey Rock, the best of Jimmy Madden, copyright Fury Records. I've never heard of Jimmy Madden. You have now. I have now. Have you ever heard of a movie called Horrors of the Black Museum? I have heard of a little film called Horrors of the Black Museum, and what a coincidence. That's something we might be talking about today. Yeah, and I think it's kind of funny how we came up with this pairing, or not really how we came up with it, but what it actually means now that we have researched and seen both movies. Would you like to tell that story? If you know both of these films, you're thinking, well, those guys really know what they're doing. They're just really putting some research into it. No, I'd love to claim that I did. Black Museum, Black Zoo, same time period. That's a cool pairing. Having seen Black Zoo now and knowing the connection with Herman Cohen... Yeah, there's a lot of connection between these two films with plots that are very, very similar. All of that legitimately was unintentional when we initially came up with this pairing, but it worked out wonderfully well and makes us look so much smarter than we are. The story was birthed from the fact that Rob Kelly, podcasting legend, was doing a commentary for the VCI release of Horrors of the Black Museum on Blu-ray. And we wanted to have him on and talk about it, as always, trying to think what movie can go with it. We thought Black, Black Zoo, Black Museum. Oh, what a great, you kind of jumped from A to Z because we could have said we were doing a Michael Goff episode, but that's not even it. It's the whole package is related. Wonderfully coincidental, and it turns out to be a much more cohesive double feature to kick off the new year. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.WordPress.com. I'm going to call this monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club to order. (laughs) Happy New Year, Richard. Happy New Year. I would like to wish new members hello on our Facebook group page. Hearty welcome to Jerry Amix. April Perry. Fur Slasher Cabot. Wash Smythe. Skip Jones. Brian Watkins. Chris Politana. The Good Times Podcast. And Richard, I'm not familiar with that, but I have a feeling that they have a good time on that podcast. I would hope they do. Michael Matai. I kind of butchered the introduction there, but these are people that have recently joined our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club Podcast. I always like to shout out is to my mother and my brother Jay out in California. Jay is caught up. He listened to our last episode where we called him out on his feedback to the other. He said he appreciated that. It was in text, so I didn't get the tone. I don't know if he was truly appreciative or if he didn't 
appreciate us. But anyway, hey, mom. Hey, Jay. Thank you for listening. Hi, Jeff's mom. Hi, Jeff's brother. Happy New Year out west. As always, I should shout out to my loving wife, Carla, and to uh, Kayla, who continues to manage our Instagram page. Richard, we don't talk about it enough, but you know we do have a YouTube channel, at Classic Horrors TV. And our only methods of feedback this month actually came from our YouTube channel. So I thought that was really cool. The first one is from Devlin Associates, LLC. He said, speaking of disaster, or excuse me, they said, speaking of disaster movies, the time tunnel plot was sort of a dry run for Irwin Allen movie taking place on the Titanic. Of course, eventually he would go out on the Poseidon adventure. And then Prince Everlove said, disasters rule the 70s until they all came true. <laughs> I think that's one reason why disaster movies don't get made now and really that much anymore, because that's the five o'clock news. We appreciate those comments. Like I said, on the YouTube channel, you can comment on the Facebook group page we mentioned. You can send us an email at classichorrors.club at gmail.com, or you could call and leave a voicemail at 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. I am eager to have our guest on. We are going to talk about Horrors of the Black Museum, and we'll follow that up with Black Zoo. Any other old business I didn't even ask you? Are we ready to move forward? Check out my blog. Last month on the show, I said, hey, I'm not doing anything for the <laughs> blog. Two days later after recording, inspiration hit. Kind of a mini countdown to Christmas. Watched several new Christmas-themed horror films, which... You know, for some reason, I don't watch those other than like November or December, but you can watch those any time of the year, I guess, for the most part. And of course, did some old time radio stuff, which I also think you can listen and find humor in that stuff any other time of the year. So check out my blog for what was uh, a much busier December than I originally planned. Richard, Christmas is every day of the year when the spirit lives in your heart. Well, and ladies and gentlemen, that is just about <laughs> as sugary and as sweet as this episode could ever possibly get. A wonderful segue. Yeah, we're oh. going to get to one of the meanest, nastiest uh, <laughs> outlooks that we could have. So Absolutely. let's take a break and we'll be back to talk about with our special guest, Rob Kelly. If you have nerve enough, come down these stairs with me to the Black Museum. And if you dare, look around this chamber of horrors. You will see the lethal possessions of a man possessed with murder. As this is a U trailer advertising an ex-certificate film, we regret we cannot show you now the scene as it appears in the picture. have to tell you the story of a man whose hobby is murder. A killer who held London in terror. We repeat, as this is a U trailer advertising an ex-certificate film, we regret we cannot show you now the scene as it appears in the picture. Here was a modern Jekyll and Hyde who killed so that he could write with relish about his victims and his crimes. Clever. Fiendishly clever. 
Ingenious enough to give us the third brutal murder in two weeks. Aren't these similar to the pair you have in your black museum? Starring Michael Gough, a killer who shopped for his weapons in London's back street antique shops. To experience all the horrors of the Black Museum, you must see the complete film. June Cunningham, the blonde who got to know him too well and talked too much. You deal! Did you bring a stranger down here, you stupid fool? You know I never allow any outsider to snoop around my workshop. This black museum is our private world. And now, thanks to you, it has been in faith. In London, a beautiful young woman receives an unexpected package. She opens it to find a pair of binoculars. Lifting them to her eyes, two blades pop out and kill her. Thus begins a string of murders using devices inspired by Scotland Yard's Black Museum. Coincidentally, Edmund Bancroft has a secret Black Museum of his own in his basement. Is he connected to the murders? We are joined today by Rob Kelly, an award-winning writer, illustrator, and pop culture historian. He writes the Real Retro Cinema column for 13thDimension.com. He's one of the creators, I believe your creator, founder of Fire & Water Podcast Network, host of shows like Fade Out, MASHcast, and Treasury Cast, among others, and co-host the Superman Movie Minute with Chris Franklin. Rob, we are waiting for Superman 4. Can you tell us? Give us breaking news today when that will be happening. You're going to be waiting a long time for that one, boys. I'm sorry. Uh, all right. <laughs> That's not our fault, though. <laughs> Anything else you want to add to your credentials? That was a very abbreviated version. No, thank you very much. I, I appreciate you guys having me on. I'm, I've been listening to the show for a bunch of years, so it's fun to be on the, this side of the, the recording wall, as it were. Nice. Welcome, thank and you. thank you for listening to the show. Absolutely. You're welcome, of course, anytime. But this we have a specific purpose. The, we're talking about the movie Horrors of the Black Museum. You were involved in the production of the Blu-ray on a couple different levels. I know you recorded a fantastic commentary. You did some artwork for the sleeve. How did you get that gig? I know uh, the president of ECI for a long time. I've known him. I worked with him a bunch of years ago when I worked at a company that involved distributing uh, movie trailers. So I worked with him then and... I have always wanted to do audio commentaries ever since DVDs came out, you know, what, 20, 30, almost 30 years ago. Oh, my God, almost 30 years ago at this point. And the whole notion of an audio commentary, I was like, I would love to do one of these one day. But I'm not, you know, I'm really qualified to do it back then. And then, you know, time wore on and I got more and more into film history 
chronicling it. As you mentioned, I started writing the column for 13 Dimension, which is the real retro cinema column. And then I started my own movie podcast, one of which, which is the Film and Water podcast. I do the occasional audio commentary, me and a guest or multiple guests, and we will just talk over a favorite movie, whether we've done Star Trek's two, three, and four. I did Hot Fuzz, American Werewolf in London. I mean, just stuff that we really, me and and my co-host can really sink our teeth into. And I finally felt sort of confident enough to say, I think I could do this professionally. And I reached out to a friend who does a lot of them. I asked her for advice and she's like, just start emailing people. Like that's all you can do is just start. And I'll tell you guys, it took years <laughs> of emailing, yeah. um, you know, the first round of emails, nobody responded at all. Second round, a couple of people would say, we'll keep you in mind. You have nothing, obviously, you know, more concrete than that. And it just kept going. And then finally I reached out to the, the people at VCI and because of my connection to them from years ago, uh, they said, well, you know what, let's give you a shot. And so they, they had me do one movie. I don't want to say what that movie is because it has not yet come out. And we don't know if it's ever going to come out because of problems with the studio, getting the materials from them. But I did one for them and they liked it. And then now they've been giving me ones ever since. And, and now I've been doing them for other companies as well. And it's, it is, I, I'm not like a big bucket list person, but that is like a bucket list item was like, just, I, we have a, um, in our, in our house here, we have what we call is our video store. Cause we have these shelves and we have all of our movies, a lot of them face out and stuff like that. So it has kind of a visual component. And I've just been saying like, I just wanted to have one Blu-ray with my name on it. And, and now I do, I have a couple of them with my name on it. And so it, that's been enormously satisfying is to just be some tiny, tiny part of, you know, movie history. There's a couple of movies that out there, if the, you know, someone in years from now buys the Blu-ray, there's my name. So that's, that's just been fantastic. Congratulations. I was wondering, do you send a, a sample or what, but I mean, you've got your podcasting history that's got to contribute to number one, your talent or ability to do it. And number two, like evidence that you can. Yeah, that, that was an enormous help is having links to send people and just say, you know, obviously if I'm doing a commentary on Star Trek four, right? Like my, one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm not going to get to do Star Trek four, you know, like that's, that's going to get, you know, they're going to have other people do that, but it's at least a way for people to hear, okay, I can comment, you know, hopefully intelligently and the audio quality is good and all that stuff. And, and, you know, like of anything, virtually any discipline, if you show a company that you can deliver a quality product on time, that's a big part of it is like on deadline they're going, they're going to say, well, this person, if we hand them this, we know it's going to get done, you know, and that's a big part of it. So getting that first one and then they could say, oh, okay, it sounds good. He knows what he's talking about. He did some research. He, he fills the whole movie. By the way, I will say that's a bugaboo of mine. I have heard some commentaries in my time where people just stop five minutes for the movie's over. And I'm like, the movie's still going. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you couldn't find five more minutes of stuff to talk about like that. That's just such a weird thing of me. I'm like, Hey, I'm still watching the movie. You guys have just, what you going to lunch? Like what's happening? Um, but so that, that was, yeah. Having the, the, the podcast first and then the fade out show where I'm interviewing people from the industry. I've interviewed screenwriters and actors and editors and directors 
that helps too, because I guess it just senses like, oh, okay, this guy's out talking to people in the industry. It, I, I, you know, probably gives it some extra sense of authenticity, I guess, or something. So having the two sets of podcasts really helped. And then, you know, getting that first one done. And now, now it's just sort of rolling because now when I'm pitching myself to other companies, they can do a quick Google and they can see, oh yeah, here's his name on this one. Here's his name on this one. So it, you know, it just sort of snowballs. Nice. You mentioned about, you know, having that, that bucket list and those cool moments of like, yep, you've got your name on the Blu-ray. And I think, you know, as monster kids, right. None of us thought, you know, watching movies, maybe not even monster movies, just movies in general. When we were younger, we didn't foresee the age where we could even potentially, you know, be talking about a movie and now with podcast and, and then of course, just the natural progression of getting to do a, a commentary in a movie. It is that, that cool moment. I know for me, Years ago now, in 2006, leaving my first voicemail on a podcast, <laughs> then being able to go to iTunes and play it for my daughter, and then she's like, what, my, my dad's on iTunes? You know, it's that mm -hmm. those cool, weird moments, and it's just, you go from this step to this step. Having a commentary on a Blu-ray is really cool, because this is physical. It's going to be there on that shelf 20 years from now, 30 years from now. Long after you're gone, movies may still be alive and well, and next generations will who is this guy? What did he do? Else he do and kind of seek out some of the other stuff. I say the same thing to Jeff because he's been published in several books. This is an accomplishment, and it's as cool for us monster kids to have that kind of legacy. So congratulations on, on doing this. This is cool. Thank you. I mean, obviously, I'm old enough. I think we all are, but like I'm old enough to remember like the only way you could ever make that kind of connection like you're talking about is like getting a letter published you know yeah. in a comic book or yeah. like famous monsters of Filmland, you know or just something or you know what creepier eerie or whatever that's as close as you could get unless you went on to become like a professional which i tried to do but that's a whole other thing but like that's you know that was all you could do and even that that was cool to see your name printed in like a comic you're like oh that's me you know yeah. i've i've sort of like pierced that membrane of like, I'm on the <laughs> other side of this now. And so, yeah, this is the modern version of that. And, you know, everyone, people that don't aren't into physical media. I end all my commentaries with long live physical media, because I always feel like it's good to have like a, maybe like a catchphrase, but I also believe it too. Obviously the people buying parts of the black museum on Blu-ray are physical media people. <laughs> That's the audience. But as we are all seeing Every, almost every day in our media news, there's, you know, consolidations and all these major companies are glomming themselves into one giant entertainment content membrane. And they're, we're losing more and more things as these streaming channels are like, oh, we don't remember all those movies we promised you. We're not having those anymore. We're pulling all those because they don't make it, you know, we're losing money. The only way is like, I own it. I yeah. owned it. And, and I'm, so now my movie collection is not exactly what you're talking about, but like my movie collection now is almost exclusively titles that I'm afraid will disappear mm. off of a streaming service. So like, I don't own the Avengers movies on Blu-ray. I like, you know, not, not a knock on them, but like, they're always going to be around. They're always going to be available, but parts of the black museum, 
or like I just got over Christmas, I bought I got a bunch of blues from my wife, like one, two, three starring James James Cagney. That's not available anywhere on streaming, but I own it now and nobody can take it away from me. So that's there's that, yes, it's the having the physical thing, but also just knowing I don't care what David Zaslav does or <laughs> what what company he decides to ruin next, I still have my copy of some Warner Brothers movie. He can't touch it. I have it forever. And that's as a movie fan, that's you know, that's everything just to know if I ever want to watch it, I can get, I don't have to, nobody can stop me. So. That's very much the way I do my collecting now too. Is it's like, I really, the stuff that I'm picking is the stuff that isn't streaming anywhere. will yep. never stream anywhere. Both of these movies we're covering in this episode are, you know, they're not easy to find on streaming. I mean, I think that, uh, horrors of the black museum is on night flight. Um, it's probably not the current version. No, and the, the version I've seen online streaming is pretty bad too. Like the yeah. copy is really poor. And Black Zoo is not uh available on any streaming app. And so um, you know, you've got to seek out the the Blu-ray for this movie, or as we'll talk about with Black Zoo. I think it's the Warner Archive collection on DVD, and, and that's and that's it. And you know, eventually a lot of those Warner Archives kind of end up kind of disappearing over time as well. And that's mm-hmm. the thing with a lot of the even with the physical media. Companies will will do limited editions now on 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 movies, and then if you don't if you don't get in early, you you regret. I uh, mm-hmm. I have lamented about Gamera for the longest time <laughs> and and missing out on that opportunity, not realizing that it was no limited edition here and gone. And so uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm totally with you there on physical media. Yeah, I'm thinking about my seventy five dollar copy of Twilight Times: The Seven Ups on Blu Ray that I bought because I didn't get it when it came out at the time. And I had to buy it kind of second run, like $75, (laughs) but I I really (laughs) wanted it. So, okay. But yeah, I should have bought it when it came out at the first time. Rob, your commentary was great. And I really like your last line, but I've got a suggestion. There's another line. I think you should add to the end of all your commentaries. You know where I'm going with this? No, I don't. Funnel cakes for everyone. (laughs) You know, it's it's funny with the with the commentaries because like I'm a huge fan of Mystery Science Theater. I love that show, but you don't want to turn it into that. You don't want the commentary to be mystery. Again, not a not I love that show. Uh I went to the convention one year. Like, you know, I'm a big fan. But you don't want it to turn into that. You don't want it to be, you don't want to be making, you know, you don't want to take it too seriously. Like, this movie's not, you know, Hearts of the Black Museum. We're not talking about Schindler's list. Like this is, you know, we, we can. <laughs> hit it a little bit but at the same time you want to take it seriously because it's it's worth considering and so i try and strike that balance and i will say sometimes when i do these commentaries like for me i watch the movie four or five times within a very short period of time take notes i have my external notes which are you know the cast lists the stuff in the press book reviews, but then I go through the movie and say, Oh, I want to talk about this scene. And then there's just stuff where I'm like, I want to give myself room to just make a comment about something that's on the screen. And hopefully that mix is what people enjoy. And so, yeah, you know, when I see like, you know, the, the horror of the final scene and yet it's like <laughs> the crowd just saw a murder and then they're just spoiler alert, everybody, the crowd just sees a murder and then they just kind of go back to like, Oh, all right. You want to go on the tilt the world? <laughs> just yeah. thought that was funny. So I was like, all right. Yeah. Funnel cakes for everybody. It was like, what the, <laughs> so 
My wife was laughing about that when she saw that. She was just like, this is the most bizarre ending. She's <laughs> just going about, you know, milling about. Yeah. Great Did ending. I just see a weirdly colored man jump off a Ferris wheel and stab another guy? Yeah, and you did. Well, okay, I guess do you want to, I don't know, do you want to go to the fun house again? I don't know. Well, there's a murder in there. Let's not do that. All right, well. Yeah, let's go to the Tunnel of Love over there. Yeah, <laughs> what? You know, so, yeah, and there was little bits and pieces here in the movie that I just couldn't help. You know, there's that scene where the doctor comes and he sees like a typewriter and he looks at a piece of paper and we don't see what it says. And I'm just like, Oh yeah. All work and no play make Jack a dull boy. Like <laughs> it, just, it just occurred to me in the moment of like, that's very shining. So, okay. I hope that when people hear that stuff, they don't take it as that I'm mocking the film because I'm not, it's more just, I'm just taking a moment to say, all right, we're commenting on some weird little thing. So I think with these kind of movies, it's, it's finding that balance. We do the same thing when we talk yeah. about the movies. I mean, sometimes you know, we we don't intentionally make fun of a movie going into it, and we don't sit. If we don't like a movie, you know, it's like sometimes we don't know. You know, we watch the movies, but we don't intentionally pick a movie to bash it. Right. That's another thing. It's like I know sometimes with commentaries, you've got it's like, did they really like the movie? I mean, because they're just sitting there bashing it all. Yeah. These well, movies like I, this, you got to find the lighthearted moments, and you got to chuckle when there's moments to chuckle. You know, it's yeah. like it's not. I don't think that's making fun of it. I think that's it's when it becomes the whole parody. It's like I I've never been a big mystery science theater fan for the most part, because I'm like they usually I feel like they're making fun of the movies that I love. So mm -hmm. I struggle with it. I know some people love it. And, and for me, I've always kind of struggled. Mm. You obviously were enjoying the movie. You you laughed a lot. You had good fun with it. And this so this may be an impossible question to ask. But did you like the movie we usually start out like with our overall thoughts if if you weren't doing the commentary would you have watched it and enjoyed it i oh yeah no i did i really did um it, it is it's a lot of fun it's like kind of what i mentioned on the commentary i do find it interesting that it is this weird mix of old gothic style horror you know it's you've got iron maidens and and people turning into monsters and guillotines like all stuff from old hollywood you know hammer style that stuff but then tonally it's way nastier than what you would think of in the not again not every movie not every horror movie was like this and, and certainly there were other films but as you think about what horror movies were going were very soon this is 1959 this movie comes out you're thinking about what horror movies were really going to become very soon after this peeping tom psycho the Herschel Gordon Lewis stuff, like it would start getting really rough, not like a year after this, like right as the sixties come in, horror takes this turn. And I kind of like that. It sat in that space because there is nobody to root for in this movie. You know, the, our main character, Michael Goff is the, again, spoiler alert for people haven't seen, <laughs> he's the bad guy. So like, and the cops are, ineffectual like and they're kind of always sort of like got their arms folded and they're kind of like fumfering at everybody you know like the one the 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 one girl the roommate you know who's telling about their her my god my roommate got her eyes gouged out they're kind of like well what are you two do in your apartment like well what are you asking that for like so there's there's this this kind of like the one guy that's sympathetic is the doctor who's michael goff's doctor He's the one guy who's like, I think this guy's got a problem. And, 
he's dispatched relatively. And, and to me, my favorite scene in the movie is that scene where he yeah. gets dispatched. But like it just tonally, it's very different than everything that that if you just looked on the visual, you it would look like like a hair again, like a hammer movie because it has all this old timey stuff, and yet it's darker. And I kind of like that, so I did. I did as I mentioned in the right at the opening of the commentary. This movie lingered long in my family's history because when I was a kid going up in, in Philadelphia, my sister, my older sister, remembered this movie. She couldn't remember the name of it, but all she could remember was she watched it one night and it featured a woman who got her eyes gouged out by binoculars. And that's all she could remember. And like it just lingered in our family of like, oh, my God, my sister saw this really scary movie. And, you know, we never... We never went back to it and like found out what it was. It just became like a piece of family lore. And so then, you know, years later, I watched this movie again and I go, oh, that's this movie. This is the movie she's talking about. And so, you know, I was like, oh, this is a perfect way to start the commentaries with a little piece of like family history. But it was just a total random connection that this was something that really haunted my sister's dreams. And yet here, here it is now, all these years later. Yeah, those binoculars are iconic. I know that they popped up in other uh, specials that I've seen over the years. You know, that one of those iconic horror mo- moments where the movie might not be one of the top tier horror films, but for some reason that that binocular scene is the one that they always kind of pick. I, I've seen multiple documentaries where they will just randomly show that show that moment. It's it's yeah, it sticks with you. Yeah, Eye so. horror is always just so oh you know, like you just it, ugh, this makes you just you know stab me anywhere but not not my eyes please and, and I, I loved your comment this. you said uh, would that really kill anyone you know you said oh it, it might hurt but you yeah know, she just falls really- over dead I'm like I, would you die would you actually die from that but you know movie people in movies die from sure. very minor wounds <laughs> it's like okay you know whatever. Well, and I appreciate that this came out in 59, because if you can imagine if this would, this, you know, that eye horror, of course, just 10 years later would have been totally different. Oh, right? my God. You imagine? Yeah. What yeah, would have Lewis you know, would have been buckets of blood <laughs> shooting exactly. out. Exactly. Or the decapitation scene, you know, which yeah. I had forgot about that scene when that was coming up. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's I can imagine you know, some people having problem going to sleep after seeing that, you know, it's just one of those things that you're, you're in bed, you're safe. And all of a sudden you wake up and, or look up and yeah, you're going to get your head chopped off, but it wasn't as brutal because it was still 1959. Right. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Did you it's ever cr- figure out what that computer thing was for? What were they doing with that? No, I don't know. Right. And that's the other th- thing I like about this movie is that like, it's, it's so old school horror, but yet, he has like Ultivac in his basement. And you're like, what is he doing with all this, this massive computer? Like, what is he in the, like, uh, sorry, Michael golf, the bat cave. Like it's what it seems like. So <laughs> yeah, the movie just has such random strands of things all kind of smooshed together. That, that is one of the things I, I liked about it. That, I mean, that's one of the, the worries about if you do commentaries as like a, a gig is what happens if you get assigned a movie that you don't like? You're like, then you're really kind of like, and they, I guess then you have to really kind of become just research heavy and just talk, just do the research. But I've been fortunate. So everyone that I've been assigned to this point, I either knew I liked it before I saw it or I watched it and I went, 
you know what? I kind of like this and I can find things to talk about that'll, that, that, you know, that I can appreciate. And, and I'm, that's generally my bent. I, I think, um, you know, when we review films on film and water, not that I do that show that regularly, but like we pick movies that we like, I don't dig out a movie to talk about because it, I don't leave it up to chance like that. Um, and so, you know, generally the stuff, everything I've been handed has been, I can appreciate. And I, I also can get a, a greater appreciation for movies from a different time because you're seeing what the world was like in a time before mm. kind of, you know, maybe most of us or some of us were around, you know, I wasn't around in 1959. So this is what horror movies look. This is what people, this is what London looked like in 1959. This is what, you know, caught the streets looked like the cars looked like the people looked like uh, the, the, the funnel cakes, you know I mean? It's like you could. Uh, and so I always, I always find an interest in that. And so luckily, like I said, I've, I've never been handed anything that was actually bad, but at the same time, would I love to get assigned a movie that I love? Like one of my, yeah. And, you know, I try to like put it out there of like, I've told people like, look, if you ever get the rights to this movie, I have to do it because I love this movie. So much. the odds of that are true because obviously my old, my favorite films are like, a, you know, the thing. You know, well, I'm never going to do the commentary for the thing. You're going to get John Carpenter to do that. You know, like so. But that's that's okay. Never know. Never say never. I like your take on on you know seeing how life was at a particular time. You know, when you're watching a movie, I I do the same thing with, especially I like the silent movies. You know, I get fascinated um, when, especially movies that were shot on location, Mm -hmm. some of the comedies, uh, I'm a big Harold Lloyd fan. And so he did a lot of location shots and it's interesting to, to, to see like city, city, you know, scenes and stuff like that. And just, you know, realize that they're kind of capturing real life, you know, in the background. And so your focus is on, you know, the first time you watch the movie is on Harold Lloyd in the car or whatever, but then the second time you watch it, you're kind of seeing the people in the background of the businesses and, and the interesting things, businesses that we don't have anymore, you know? It's oh, totally. A- There's Think about all the movies that we probably currently dismiss. And 30, 40 years from now, people are going to go, oh, man, I love that 2013 movie because it shows New York and what it looked like in 2013. To us, that's not remarkable. But in 50 years, New York's going to look very different. Yeah. And and so for some people, like I think about when I watch The Odd Couple, like I love The Odd Couple because it's a great comedy. And it's, as you mentioned, it's, you know, you're watching Lemon and Matthau, but there's lots of scenes of like Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau just walking around New York in 1968. And you're like, wow, I've been down that street. It doesn't look like that anymore. The, 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 look at that supermarket. Look at that. And I just, I find that stuff fascinating. So yeah, that that's an added bonus. You're, it's a, it's a time machine, oh, you yeah. know? <laughs> so. Well, you know, in New York, just changed so much, you know, because there was, you know, after they did the cleanup and and so you watch some of the movies made during that time before the cleanup and it's got a it's got a gritty feeling. <laughs> and, yep. and a lot of people, of course, who lived through that, you know, I've heard. Yeah, they kind of look at it with a nostalgic view now because like, yeah, that 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 grindhouse version is gone, mm-hmm. you know, but there's they had. You know, some interesting, especially with the Grindhouse Theaters, I, I've read some things that are downright frightening. You know, you're putting your life in, in somebody else's hands. <laughs> you went to some of those theaters just to see some rare kung fu flick, you know, that you mm-hmm. get somewhere else. 
But meanwhile, you got to make sure you don't fall asleep in the theater because you may not wake up. <laughs> yeah, it's not not advisable. <laughs> so. no. Mentioning the grimy surfaces or whatever you said, Richard, you made Rob, you made a very good observation that I would not have noticed in this movie had you not mentioned it. And then I noticed it every instance after that. And that was the art direction mm. uh, in the sets. Do you want to tell us a little about that? Yeah, I mean, they're they're really beautiful. I mean, again, for a relatively it wasn't a super low budget movie, but it wasn't, you know, wasn't an A picture. Herman Cohen is scraping this stuff together. But yeah, it's a it's a beautifully constructed film. I love looking at sets, like these vast sets they have now. Like, I mean, like I said, when Michael Goff goes down to his chamber of horrors, you're like, my God, how much space does this guy have in his house? Like he's got this whole thing, you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a really attractive looking movie. I love the colors of it, you know. Um, I love that bar that the Michael Goff's chippy goes to. Like, and then like she's dancing, and like there are no tables. Yeah, for like a full half mile around her. And it's like, you're yeah. like, you know, you guys are not utilizing this space properly. You could probably put in a couple more tables and make a little bit of money, but that's. You know, everything was just bigger. Like everything is just huge. And so, yeah, I was, that's what you get from watching something like four or five times. You just start picking, you can't help it because you're already like, we already know what the main action is. So now I got to focus on the stuff in the background. Is there something worth noticing in the background? And, you know, I'm doing, I'm working on a commentary right now for, for an upcoming uh, film and it's coming out on Blu-ray and I watched, it's not, I don't even want to get into what it is yet because I'm very superstitious. Like to me, until it's actually out, I never even mention it. But I watched the film a second time. And the first time I watched it all the way through, I watched it for the main action. Then I watched it the second time. And I noticed there's a guy in the scene who has no lines, but he's doing something weird with his face. And he's kind of reacting to it. And I'm like, oh my God, I love this guy. And so now I know I'm going to point that out when we do the commentary. Because I'm like, okay, when we get to the scene, look at that guy over there. Look at what he's doing. And that's only because you've seen you're watching it multiple times. I'm not paying attention to the main action anymore because I already know what's happening there. Yeah. I noticed that in the uh, when the woman that you mentioned gets beheaded and the killer runs out and then there's the, <laughs> the crowd of neighbors that are out there. And you you commented on the scene that I, I don't remember the technical aspect of having that many people. Maybe it was the lighting or something, but I watching it more than once once regular to hear the commentary, I kind of honed in on those characters. And each time I would just watch one of the characters through the whole scene to see what they do. And so mm -hmm. that gray haired woman in the middle, uh, <laughs> she was just so funny, her reactions. And, but the thing is they like are reacting, they're mm -hmm. participating. They're not just, you know, background characters. Yeah. It's a lot of, I, again, to mention John Carpenter, he mentions on his commentary for the thing, he was talking about the fifties thing. And saying that there's one shot in that film that has like 18 people in it. And and he was like gobsmacked. He's like, eight, there was an 18 shot in that movie. Like he's impressed. And now I pay attention to that now where I say, geez, the scene with 12 actors and they're all hitting their marks. Like you see all their faces. Like it's, it's construct, you know, a scene like that, like you've seen, like you're, like you're mentioning where it's the killer has run away and they're all just kind of talking to the cops and it's like, what, 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 what? It, it could look like just a big scrum, but it's like, no, they actually put this person goes here. This person goes there. This person is standing between these other two. And it's very carefully composed. And you wouldn't necessarily 
think about it. But yeah, when you see it, you're like, wow, they, they bothered to have 11 actors in this scene. And most of them don't talk, but they're all doing something. There's nobody just standing. I mean, that would be a bad actor who's just standing there, not paying attention to what's going on. But yeah, I, I love seeing all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, that's the director of this film, you know, was hired as kind of like a guy that Herman Cohen could push around. But I don't know. I'm like, I thought he did a pretty good job with it. I mean, I don't know how much Herman Cohen was standing over his shoulder, but I was like, the guy, you know, guy, the guy didn't have, he knew how to compose any given shot. Let's talk about Herman Cohen for a minute. You mentioned what a showman he was and, and some of his antics, I guess you kind of explained in the commentary. What is he, would you consider him a it, similar to William Castle? I know he took it to a, a a far extreme, <laughs> but uh, did was he channeling him a little bit? Oh, I think so. I mean, just doing research on the guy, you know, he just, I really do appreciate, and I think we've lost that because I think we just take ourselves like a, so much more serious. But like one of the things I love is like the Cohen brothers, like putting that thing in Fargo. This is based on true events. And that's a lie. He's made <laughs> it up. Like, what are they going to do? What are you going to do? Go to go to movie jail? I mean, what's the difference? And like they did another one where the blood, I think it's the blood simple Blu-ray has an audio commentary by a film historian. And it's, it's made up. That guy's not real. They hired an actor to play a film historian doing the commentary on blood simple. And they don't tell you that you just have to know that it's made up. <laughs> I like that impish sense of humor. And I like that Herman Cohen was like, I got to. Get some attention. So I'm going to make up a story about stolen artifacts and like, you're like, that's kind of, wow, man. You know, like we, we wouldn't do that now. You didn't, you don't have guys like I'd say maybe like the last guy is maybe like a Dino De Laurentiis. Maybe like he didn't do that kind of stuff. He didn't do the shtick, but he was like, just one of these big guys who was like, you know, let me hire. Well, you know what? I have the flash Gordon rights. Let me, let me try and hire Frigo Fellini to do it. Like what? You know, and I think movies lose something by having having lost people like that. So, yeah, I did enjoy Herman Cohen of like he just was like, I got to get attention for this movie. I'll do it. You know, I'm going to do whatever I can. And if I have to make stuff up, then I have to make stuff up. What's going to happen? But it was so funny that he's so defensive about the violence of this movie. And as I mentioned in like the press book, there's all these articles about, you know, violence existed before our movie. You could tell it's such a like. CYA move of like what horror movies did Hitler watch? It's all that kind of stuff. And so it's just so funny that Herman Cohen was clearly sensitive to he's like, I grew up on Frankenstein and I'm fine. So like, okay, all right. I was definitely getting a William Castle vibe when I watched one of the specials on the Blu-ray. I think it was the tribute to uh, Herman Cohen. The Hypno Vista opening of the film that was restored for this release. Do you know do you know anything about Emil Franchel? Did you do any research on him? Uh, like a little bit. There wasn't a whole lot. I mean, he was a real guy. Yeah. Like I mean, and when I say that is he was a real psychologist or psychiatrist. I think he was a psych psychologist, not psychiatrist. Um, but he was like a real guy. He wasn't um somebody that was kind of like, yeah, he had a doctorate, but he was really kind of a guy that wanted, you know, just wanted to be in movies. And no, he had a real career and he wrote lots of books. Um, I do find that opening, uh, you know, like kind of, and I tried to be gentle about it when I did the commentary, but I did find that intro like a little sleep inducing because he's just kind of lecturing. And I, the whole point of like the William Castle stuff is to like gin you up, you know, you're like, 
the fright break or the, the you know the skeleton the emerjo or whatever and emil frankel is just kind of like you know which line is longer this one or this one <laughs> surprise they're both the same like why am i taking an sat test before i and sit through this movie in kind of this monotone hypnotic tone that and i can see how they took this out of the syndicated version were you guys able to separate your hands? <laughs> like all the stuff that he did. The one part that was fun was then when they show the woman and they pan down and she's got the needle in her arm. And and I'm like, okay, that's kind of, as I even mentioned in the commentary, it's like a Mondo Connick kind of thing. Like, ooh, look, she's she's got this big blade in her arm and she doesn't feel it. But yeah, the rest of it, I, that that was the only part of the commentary that I actually was sort of, I will admit, like struggling to find something to talk about for 10, 12 minutes. Cause I'm like, all right, I do my research on this guy, but like, there's not much, he's just kind of standing there droning on. And yeah. I just found it so odd that like that in a the, and the, you know, there's the quote from Herman Coe where he's like, Oh, we'd worked like gangbusters. I'm like, it did really <laughs> yeah. people, you know, like, okay, you know, fine. But yeah, I'm glad it's there. I'm glad that they VCI found it and put it on there. Cause it, it was part of the film, but I did. Yeah. I don't, it, William Castle was much better. Even Alfred Hitchcock, you know, with his trailers, but Castle was so much better at getting you excited or scared about what you were going to see, as opposed to a guy just kind of, you know, okay, let's talk about it. And the f- hypnotism doesn't really feature into the movie that much. It's, you know, yeah. Goff is kind of the Svengali type. So the two things don't match up. And then of course you could realize, well, we don't, if, if you're a real believer in psychiatry of, um, hypnotism as a form of therapy this you don't want that in the movie you don't want that to be like well you know what hypnotism could do can make it take over a guy so he can commit murder like well that's that's kind of bad right so it's (laughs) it's a weird mix of the two things oh one little plot point i wanted to address before i forget it and you mentioned the doctor rob um so he talks about these fits that michael goff has after (laughs) a murder we don't see one do we no no, so we don't really I know. had a hard time yeah. kind of I, I wanted to see him have a fit so we could demonstrate what he's talking about. Because that would have been sure. yeah, that would have been a nice thing to have, like, you know, to do do it all in reds or something, and he's mm. uh, you know, do like a wavy <laughs> back, just something. Yeah, no, they don't really I never really thought of it, but they, they don't do that. You just see him commit the murder and then like, okay, all right. Yeah, I could see it with a blue and uh blue and yellow spiral behind his mm-hmm. head. That's what I was going for with the cover art was that just that kind of weird phantasmagorical kind of feel to it. I think the closest we see to a fit is like a couple of times when he goes into a rage against his girlfriend there. Also, when he goes into kind of the slight rage with the antiques dealer, he gets really mad at, you know. Yeah. Or uh, and also the girlfriend, Rick's girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's all women. The women, the women are killed out of rage. The one person who gets killed, the doctor, is more of a function. It's just like, yeah. okay, I got to get this guy out of the way because he's going to alert. He's going to tell the cops on me. I just got to kill him. But the other ones, like Goff's speech about women at the end, is so like he's just like they want to take over your life. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, all right, incel, settle down. Like, it's all right. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. And that aspect's really ramped up in uh, Black Zoo. I thought. It is even yeah. more extreme. Yeah, he just wow. doesn't. You don't really get the. There's not much background in that in the black zoo, but it's like it's there, and it's just like it's ramped up to eleven. Oh. <laughs> well, 
Well, Rich usually goes through the cast and crew and gives some highlights. You want to start, Rich? And Rob, please interrupt any time that you've got something to add or something that you think needs extra mention. We've got the main actor, uh, Michael Goff, as Edmund Bancroft. Some of the stuff I'm going to hold on for The Black Zoo, because he's obviously in our second film. Do you have anything to add about the lead actor there? I, I Look, I enjoyed him. I mean, um, it's funny to think, you know, we said that Herman Cohen originally thought about getting Vincent Price, which you could understand. Um, Vincent Price, you know, was so, even when he was a bad guy, was so genteel. For the most part, it it would have been interesting to see him play something so, you know, despicable here. I mean, he did in some other, you know, Conqueror Worm and stuff like that. But for the most part, he was just more just a gentler guy. And so it would have been interesting to see him do this. And then they said that he was briefly talking about Orson Welles, which is like, I don't whether that's true or not. I don't know. You know, I mean, did, what he could have he gotten Orson Welles to do this movie? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe Orson needed money for the trial or something, but um, yeah, no, I, it, it was, it was fun seeing a guy that I of course became so familiar with later on. Yeah. Uh, you know, he kind of had that second career with, with Tim Burton. So, and he's, he's fun in it. I mean, it's, I love how he can just enter a room. Like I love that he just walks into police stations and he just carries himself with that confidence of like, I belong here. And I'm like, well, why are you here? Yeah. You're like the local author. Why are the cops letting you in? Like, I don't understand. Yeah, so, there's a measure of arrogance about him. It's just like, you know, no, I'm I'm here. You're not going to do anything. So we had June Cunningham as Joan Berkeley, who was his girlfriend, Edmund's girlfriend. Uh, 24 credits. Really, this is the one movie that I think she's most remembered for now as she's doing her little dance there in the bar. Memorably so, as the most uh, memorable death. Not a lot on her. Did you find anything on on her uh, outside of this movie? No, she pretty. I mean, according to IMDb, she's still around. But uh, you know, who knows? It could be IMDb just isn't updated on that. But yeah, after a certain point, she just sort of disappeared. Um, I'm I'm always fascinated by people who leave Hollywood and like yeah. they just go and live like a normal life. And I'm like, do they ever talk about it? like, oh, hey, you know what? I did a movie once with. So and so, you're like, really? Like, what? You know, that kind of thing. Is that some somebody's like grandma? You know, was like, oh yeah, I got my head chopped off in a in a (laughs) Michael Goffin. You're like, what? Really? But yeah, a lot of the actors outside of God don't. You know, there's obviously the cop, uh, the the main inspector had a long career, but yeah, a lot of the side people didn't have like really long careers outside of this film. This is for a lot of them. This is their main credit. Rick, his assistant, played by uh, Graham Kernow. 13 credits, you know, yep. that was it. And this is what he's most remembered for. Angela Banks, played by Shirley Ann Field, was Rick's girlfriend. Peeping Tom in The Damned. So she's mm-hmm. got a couple of other films. We just lost her, actually. She just passed away on December 10th at age 87. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, my. Oh, that was just after I recorded the thing. So, oh, wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, literally just before the Blu-ray came out. The cop, Superintendent Graham, played by Jeffrey Keene. Probably aside from Michael Goth, the, the one with the most credits, 149 credits. Uh, definitely some horror cred. He was in uh, Doctor Sin, Alias the Scarecrow, Berserk, <laughs> Taste the Blood of Dracula, Minister of Defense in six James Bond movies. Yeah, the Spy Who Loved Me to The Living Daylights. So he worked alongside both Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton. In a little bit of foreshadowing, we've got John Warwick as Inspector Lodge. Now, foreshadowing as far as the show goes, 109 credits. Two of the movies he did, 
The Ticket of Leave Man from 1937 and Face at the Window 1939, both of which star Todd Slaughter. So sneak peek, Todd Slaughter might be coming up in our near future here on the show. <laughs> Anything to add on, on some of those cast members? I enjoyed the, like I said, Jeffrey Keen was seeing him. I mean, I grew up with him seeing him in the James, he's in my all-time favorite James Bond movie for your eyes only. So um, that was, that was great. I, I really liked uh, the, the Rick's girlfriend I, in the movie. Like they kind of like paint her as like, she's this harpy who's trying to control Rick, but I don't know. Rick is murdering people. Like she doesn't know that, but like, he's a real sop for Michael Goffin. So when she's like, kind of like, I want to, take you away from all this. I was like sympathetic to, to that character. And I liked how uh, the actress played it. And then when she dies, I was really like, Oh, I, you know, so that was the one where like the movie was stacked against her, but I thought, I don't know. I thought the way she played it was more sympathetic than maybe on the page. It, 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 it was meant to be played, but I thought she did a, I think she did a good job. I had to chuckle a little bit when she's standing there talking to, uh, Edmund and she's like, you know, you know, I'm just not going to be one of those wives that stays at home. I'm going to be by his side. I'm going to be involved in his work and I'm going to be doing all this. And my wife just looks at me and she said, well, she's going to die. (laughs) (laughs) She's just painting a big red X on her. It's like, yes, Mm -hmm. I'm your next victim, please. Uh, I I missed a couple of the other cast members that, uh, but we, and so I didn't write them down, but as I'm thinking here, we've got the antiques dealer who pops up in, in several scenes, played it memorably. I I enjoyed the line. I get nothing from the actors particularly, but I love the line where like we, we joke about that. Like people just looked older back then than they do now, you know, 60 back then looked ancient and now we think of people in their 60s when they pay if they pass away in their 60s we're like oh my god they were so young and the antique dealer has a line where she says something like i have to think about what i'm going to do when i get old and i'm like i think you're kind of there already (laughs) like like she's (laughs) she's she's kind of acting like oh in the far off future when i'm near retirement i'm like aren't you like 70 already like what are you talking about (laughs) yeah you probably look at it she's no she's actually 42 yeah right (laughs) Exactly. Like, you know, it's always, it's just kind of like just people just looked older back then. So it's just sort of funny that she has that line about, I need to worry about my future. I'm like, uh, you really should be preparing better than this, than this <laughs> filthy antique store that you're running that doesn't look like it's been cleaned in 20 years. <laughs> Richard, so, usually have Star Trek and Doctor Who references. Do you Do you well, want to play a game with Rob and see if he knows them or are those in the second movie? Well, you know, we can certainly cover the Doctor Who. I don't have any Star Trek references uh-huh. in this one, but I do have a big Doctor Who reference. Obviously, Michael Goff, who played uh, the Celestial Toymaker on uh, Doctor Who back in 1966, and uh, has just the character of the Toymaker for Doctor Who fans, modern Who fans. They brought back the Toymaker uh, and is now being played by Neil Patrick Harris. Ooh, um, wow. Toymaker is from another dimension and decades later has come back in. There was a moment where they did like a little quick little flashback sequence, colorized the old black and white footage. And so Michael Goff got a few seconds of screen time as the Celestial Toymaker in, uh, I think it was the the third of the four most recent specials that just aired uh, opposite David Tennant's 10th Doctor. So he had his moment, you know, getting a little bit of recognition. And they're, in fact, 
they are animating that particular story. It was a four-part story. The first three episodes were missing. The fourth episode still exists, so they're going to be animating that and kind of fast-tracking it. And In fact, by the time this comes out, I think it's already going to be available in the UK. So they were doing some work and announced it pretty much as it was ready to go out to kind of sync up with the the new uh, Doctor Who episodes. He also you know played- what you just put in my head? A remake of this movie with Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> he also had another Doctor Who credit. Uh, he played a Gallifreyan Chancellor Hedden uh, in a 1983 episode called Arc of Infinity. So that's my Doctor Who references for uh, for this episode. All right. Anything else, cast and crew? That's all that I had. I mean, well, you know, we should talk about the writers, Herman Cohen and... Aben Candel. Herman Cohen's got 25 producer creds. Bella Gossi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. Not necessarily A-list entertainment there, but nonetheless, we've got Target Earth. He was the uh, producer of the last Abbott and Costello film, Dance With Me, Henry. I Was a Teenage Werewolf. I Was a Teenage Frankenstein. How to Make a Monster. Blood of Dracula. The Headless Ghost. Conga. Black Zoo. A Study in Terror. And why not? We'll throw in a spaghetti western, Django the Bastard. He was the producer of the U.S. version. Also, Berserk and Trog and Craze. A lot of the same creds go to Avon Kandel, who had 45 writing credits. He wrote a lot of those films under pseudonyms. He wrote I Was a Teenage Werewolf and Blood of Dracula as Ralph Thornton. He wrote I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, How to Make a Monster and the Headless Ghost as Kenneth Langtree also wrote the other films under his real name. He died on June 20 or June 2002 at the age of 76. I didn't have when Herman Cohen passed away. And then we've also got the director, Arthur Crabtree, that we talked about. 22 films, so not a lot of films in his credentials, but he did direct Boris Karloff in seven episodes of Colonel March of Scotland Yard. He also did Fiend Without a Face, and I believe that his work in that film is what got him noticed and recognized to become the director for this film. This was actually his last film. He directed a TV show in 1961, retired, and then passed away in 1975 at the age of 74. You know, it's it's your guy's show, but if I may pitch you an episode you should do, since you like to marriage up your themes, is... Subject yourself well. So the, subject yourself to Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla, <laughs> right? And you pair that up with Abin Costello meet the killer Boris Karloff. And the theme is actors who got their names in the title of the movie. There aren't that many <laughs> movies like that. I like They're, that. You know, like really how many like movies? That. How many movies can you think of where the actor's name is literally in the title? So there you go. Now. Abin Costello Meet the Killer, comma, Boris Karloff, I actually think is a good movie. Bella Gossi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla, not so much. But, you know, you guys could just just throw it out there in case you want to subject yourself to that horrible idea. I actually really like that theme. And, you know, Bella goes, sometimes a movie can be so bad. It's like that. that's where we kind of like, okay, we're just going to have fun with this one. Bella Gossi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla is, is bad enough that there's enough stuff <laughs> that you can talk about it including the D. Martin, Jerry Lewis ripoffs that it started. And I, you know, I've seen Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla on the big screen. So <laughs> oh, we have man. a thing locally called cinema go, go. And they, they usually 
pick the cheesy movies. And sometimes they do the they do, you know, a list. Uh, uh, this was one of the movies that they that they played. And of course, the crowd loves it. And they kind of sometimes the crowd will get into their mystery science theater mode. When I was a young, like a teenager, and I first heard of that movie, the thing that always threw me was why a Brooklyn gorilla? Like, why, why, why is Brooklyn? What about, like, you know what I mean? Like, why is it like Bell Lugosi meets a gorilla? All right, that's your plot. But like, there was something about like, what are there different kinds of gorillas in Brooklyn that that mean, you know, like, it was always just like, why is that the, the quality, the, the, the signifier? I don't understand. It's very strange. It rolls off the tongue nicely. I, I guess so. You want to get that extra word in there. But yeah, yeah there you go. I mean, that's it. Other, so few movies. They We should make more movies like that where they just put the star, you know, Margaret Robbie meets of this. They should just make movies <laughs> like that. <laughs> I looked up a couple other people based on comments in the commentary. The art director, C. Wilfred Arnold, and the editor, because there's controversy, I guess, if tr- scenes were really trimmed or not. His name is Jeffrey Muller or Mueller. And I think you also mentioned a lot of these creators cross paths and they come as sort of package deals and they work. But the common thread for at least Cohen, the art director and the editor was a movie called The Electronic Monster in 1958. I had never heard of that. Have either of you guys heard of it or seen it? Heard of it, not seen it. Hmm. Oh, not. This movie was inducted into the Museum of Modern Art for the request (laughs) of Martin Scorsese. I love that. I love that detail. That's so quirky. Why this film? I don't know the details behind that, but why not? Dorinda Stevens, she played the first victim. She played Gail. She also was in Jack the Ripper in 59, but she did a few other 1960s spy television shows, The Saint, The Avengers, and uh, Secret Agent. Also, this was the first movie, uh, first American international film that was in color and cinemascope, which, again, I found unique why this film was picked. I thought we could kind of close with some of the reviews. You talk about that in the commentary. And I think in general, when it came out, the reviews weren't good. But now we're looking more favorably on it. You quoted one of the negative reviews, which I think is just <laughs> fantastic. Do you want to share it or do you want to save something for uh, people to listen well, which, to? Which one are you, which one are you referring uh, to? The, there, was a uh, lot. there were a lot of negative reviews. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Pick one. If you if you miss it, I'll uh, let you know. Well, the one, the one that I really found interesting was the woman who wrote in, I think it was mm. in Texas, maybe. Uh, and she was like this. It, she, she says she admits she didn't even see the movie. She just saw the trailer. And she's like, and she wrote into some guy who had a column at the local paper. And she was like, why does our community allow such garbage to even be played? And so then the guy who has the column is like, yeah, you're right. And he then he says to movie theater owners, better to close your doors for a week than run garbage like this. And I'm like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm like, Holy geez. And so then I, I, I'm blanking on the name of the guy, but like when I got to the part about Martin Scorsese, I was like, take that buddy. Like Martin Scorsese (laughs) wants this movie in them, you know, but it was like, that's literally telling business owners, you should not make any money this week rather than run this garbage. I'm like, that's a negative review. Like, (laughs) that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. I was so happy when I found that in my research. I was like, Oh, this is gold. This is, this is commentary gold. This kind of thing. (laughs) Any anything we 
you want to add, Rob, that we didn't cover or um, are we ready to wrap it up? Uh, just uh, thank you for, for having me on to talk about this. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it was a real honor to be to be part of this commentary of the you know, the, the Blu-ray. And I said I mentioned I did the, the flip cover for the for the release. And uh, and so, yeah, it was just I'm really proud of it. I I'm I don't you know, I'm not a sociopath. I don't go back and listen to my own podcasts, you know, like they're, once they're done, they're out and they're, there they go. But I do. When the blue, when the, when I get my fun, when I get my actual copy of the Blu-ray, I go back and I listen to it because I want to get better. And I've listened to, to I, there was one I listened to and I went, eh, I could have done that better, but I did, I, I did the best job I could at the time, but I listened to this and I was like, I don't know. I was like, I was pretty happy with this. Like I, you know, and so, um, that's because I, I try and I love audio commentaries and I love, like i you know, I try and think what is the kind of commentary I would want to listen to. And that's not going to be for everybody, but I try and do the thing that I would want to hear, which is I hope a combo of background, context, what the film, how it was received at the time, you know, obviously the filmographies and stuff like that, but also commenting on it in real time, you know, and having, and having that mix and, uh, like I will mention my favorite audio commentary of all time is Superman, the movie by Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz. And I've listened to those two guys. I think I've listened to that commentary track probably a hundred times at this point. Like it's, they are like the, they're the, the two coolest uncles you will ever have. And just imagine being in a room, listening to these guys talk about making Superman. And while I can't, I don't, I can't possibly achieve that because I've never, going to be the one who made the movie i aspire to that level of kind of just warmth of just somebody like you're just sitting in a room with somebody and they're talking and they're really appreciating this movie and that's what i hope that i'm going to be able to do with future commentaries as they come along well you succeeded i was telling richard before we debated on listening to the commentary or not and i wanted to and richard didn't we thought that'd be kind of a good combination <laughs> Uh, well, and Richard, you know, is is lazy because he figured he wouldn't have to do any research if you were coming on. So I appreciate that. I yeah, I'm lazy but no, I was no, telling him how it is. It it is <laughs> you can kind of you sort of can categorize commentaries. I mean, you know, when you're going to get a scholarly one, yeah. and but you it you are it, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was great, and I really appreciated the the style. I don't know that I've really heard one quite like that so thank you i appreciate I it, like it. Said, and i'm not just waxing your car as you I'll, would say which I'll, by the way always makes me feel a little uncomfortable like what are you talking about? <laughs> i'll send you the paypal payment when we're done here Jeff. Yeah. but uh you no know, i i like said some people just read essays you know and that's fine that's the way they want to do it but to me it's like i i like why I guess my thing is like, to me, if you're just reading something that you've already written, why do you, it doesn't need to be paired up with the movie. Cause you're not connecting it to the, like, don't watch the movie then. Cause to me, the whole point of having a synced commentary track is to comment as the, as you're sitting there watching. It. And so to me, that's what I try and do. And like, there's going to be moments where like, boy, this scene is a real Dullsville. Now's the time to get into the cast list. I'll talk about, you know, Michael Goff. And I just had fun that like everybody in this movie was in conga. I just like find conga. I just like find saying that. But so I, yeah, I try and strike that balance of, of that sort of thing. Cause those are the ones that I enjoy 
the most. So, you know, if I can, if I can do that for somebody else, that's awesome. I know you can't mention any that are coming up and I apologize. I didn't realize that this wasn't your first. What, what else have you commented on that we could hear? I did another one for VCI called the gamblers, uh, which is from 1970 and it's a heist movie, like a card sharp movie. Um, and, uh, that was the first one that wasn't the, like I mentioned, that wasn't the first one that I did. The one that's still kind of in the mid stages of production or wherever it is, but that one's out. The gamblers is out now. And then maybe, maybe by the time people get to hear this, I will have had, there's another one coming out at a, um, a movie called the Swiss conspiracy Mm. with David Jansen. And I did that with my pal, uh, Dan Budnick. We did that one together. And then, um, Pretty soon after that, uh, their VCI is re-releasing Dark Knight of the Scarecrow uh, with a with a new commentary, with a bunch of new commentaries. And I did that one uh, with uh, Amanda Reyes, who done a million of these uh, commentaries and Heath Holland from Serial at Midnight. So that was fun, too. So I got those two coming up. And then like I said there's other ones that I have yet to record, but I'm working on them now. Oh, I'm excited to hear about Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. I only watched it recently for the first time, and I think I bought whatever version was the latest yep. at the time. And I'm like, oh, I just bought this. I'm not going to buy it, but right. got to now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great movie. I love it. Yeah, it's fun. Rich, any last words from you? We should just remind people to get the Blu-ray. It's out now. Just came out uh, last month, and it's got all sorts of other cool extras on it. It's price what less than twenty dollars. Come on, guys, add it to your collection. It is definitely the way to go. I will be going back as well to listen to the commentary. I elected not to because I wanted to go in blind conversation. <laughs> mm-hmm. with yeah, I felt it was a good balance with Jeff because I knew Jeff. He's the overachiever when it comes to that. And I knew he'd be listening. Rob, it has truly been an honor having you. Absolutely. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks, boys. Starring Michael Goff, Gene Cooper, Rod Lauren, Virginia Gray, Jerome Cowan, Elisha Cook. I got a bag. Children, I brought you here because we'll have to face a problem. The Black Zoo brings you the weirdest, most terrifying experience of your life. For here, the lion is king of killer beasts. The black leopard and the tiger. Night-prowling, claw-killing executioners. All honored by the bloodthirsty cult of animal worshippers. Their master, a man more animal than human. Inhumanly cruel to other human beings. You devil and needle me like I can you can stand! A murderer condemning a man to die by animal claws. Throw him in there.
In California, a beautiful young woman walks home alone at night. She strolls along a hedge from which a tiger is peeking. It leaps onto her and kills her. Thus begins a string of murders committed by escaped animals, or by someone controlling them. Coincidentally, Michael Conrad has an animal kingdom in his backyard. Is he connected to the murders? Richard, before we get into Black Zoo, we need to set the stage. I don't know that how much more we need to say about nine, 1963. We all know that it is a year that will go down in infamy. One of the greatest things happened in February of that year. Nevertheless, set the stage. At the time Black Zoo was released, what else was going on? That movie might be a little hard, a little rough for some people. They may not want to go. What else could they do for entertainment? Another wonderful thing happened in April of 1963. Obviously, two massive events happening at the start of the year. And then we get to May and a little film called Black Zoo. So Black Zoo was released on, what do I have the date here? May 15th, 1963. If you were not wanting to go to the movies, you wanted to listen to your radio, these are the top songs for the week of May 18th, 1963. So we had top rising songs of the week included The Do Ron Ron by The Crystals, It's My Party by Leslie Gore, and Shutdown by The Beach Boys. Now the top 10 is schizophrenic. You've got 63, so you got some bleed over late 50s kind of music, you got some surf music, you got some folk music, and you got some vocal music. Number 10, and let me know if you know these songs. This was probably one of the more difficult top 10s and the songs that I did not know. Mm. Some of them I knew once I heard it, most of them still didn't ring a bell with me. So number okay. 10... I Love You Because by Al Martino. No. Okay. Number nine, Can't Get Used to Losing You by Andy Williams. No. Number eight, Reverend Mr. Black by the Kingston Trio. No. Number seven, Losing You by Brenda Lee. No. So far, you and I were totally <laughs> I did not know these songs either. Sorry for some of you who might be older than us and say, what, you don't know the King? I knew the Kingston Trio and Andy Williams and Al Martino and Brenda Lee. I've heard all the artists, just not these particular songs. Are now, there I people think, older than us? I think there's maybe one or two out there. I'm sorry to include you in the old man bucket, but you are a grandfather. Back to the countdown. Number six, Pipeline by the Chantays. Surf music. Oh, huh. If you I, listen, yeah, I did, I, maybe I would know it. I don't know it by name. Yeah, you, I didn't know it by name, but once I played, I was like, okay, yeah, I've heard that before. Number five, Foolish Little Girl by the Shirelles. Uh, I didn't know that one. Oh. Number four, Surfing USA by the Beach Boys. Yes. Number three, Puff the Magic Dragon by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Yes. And number two... I Will Follow Him by Little Peggy March. Yes. Number one, If You Want to Be Happy by Jimmy Soul. I do know that. Oh, okay. So you do one more than I did. If we were going to be staying home and watching television, I didn't have the specific program listings for Saturday night, May 18th, 1963, 
as you go older, uh, it's a little harder to find specific nights. But I found out what the schedule was. So I went with what the, the television schedule overall was. So over on NBC, you could have watched a show called Sam Benedict. This was a legal drama that lasted one season starring Edmund O'Brien. And as we well know, shows lasting one season kind of get quickly forgotten in television history. There's just not enough to make it uh, profitable in syndication. So I had never heard of this one. Uh, the Joey Bishop show was on the air following that, and it was in living color. Ooh. And then uh, we had the NBC Saturday night at the movies in living color, <laughs> provided the movie was in living color. But I don't know what the movie was for that night. But there was a movie, so there was an option. ABC actually started earlier on Saturday nights. Beanie and Cecil. This is a cartoon about a boy and his dinosaur. I have heard about this on and off since I was a kid. I have never seen a Beanie and Cecil cartoon before mm. my time. Following that was The Gallant Men. This was a one-season World War II drama. The same season that Combat launched. Combat ended up being the much more popular of the two. Lasted several seasons. The Gallant Men was one and done. Then, of course, we had a musical variety show, Hootenanny. I don't know who the musical guests were on Hootenanny, but <laughs> I'm sure they were a hoot. But I'm bunch. Oh, and then we go straight into from Hootenanny to the Lawrence Welk show. Yeah. I didn't realize that was ever a network show. I thought it was always in syndication. No, it was a network show. Oh. Yeah. As kids, if you grew up in the 70s, inevitably at some point you watched the Lawrence Welk show. Yep. Your parents were watching the Lawrence Welk show and you didn't have much of an option. Following the Lawrence Welk show, naturally, it's the fight of the week. You get a, a boxing match on television. And if the boxing match didn't last longer than 45 minutes, you got a wonderful show called Make That Spare. <laughs> Bowling on Saturday night at 945. That's how you know. You have no life if you're watching bowling on television Saturday nights at 945. That's Over quite a diverse lineup. Yeah, crazy. Over at CBS, things I think were a little bit better. You had the Jackie Gleason show, which was a variety show, I think, at that point. Um, then the Defenders. Have you ever are you familiar with the Defenders? Yeah, Hulk, Doctor Strange. Not that Defenders. Oh, no. okay. This was a courtroom drama that lasted uh, 132 episodes. It starred E.G. Marshall mm. and a pre-Mike Brady Robert Reed. Seriously, I do remember that. Then we had a Western called Have Gun, Will Travel, which I'm familiar with. And then, of course, Gunsmoke. Saturday night, 9 o'clock Central Time. Gunsmoke on the air for 20 years. If you wanted to go to the movies... Box office of May 22nd, 1963, number one at the box office for the seventh of an eventual 11 weeks at the top, How the West Was Won. Uh, one of the biggest movies of the year with an all-star cast that included Henry Fonda, Jimmy Stewart, and John Wayne. Other top films of the year included Lawrence of Arabia, To Kill a Mockingbird, Cleopatra, The Birds, 
And at the end of the year, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Other horror films for the year, a lot of Karloff and a lot of Vincent Price in 1963. We had Black Sabbath, which of course featured Boris Karloff. We had uh, Diary of a Madman with Vincent Price. We had The Haunted Palace with Vincent Price and Lon Chaney Jr. We had Twice Told Tales with Vincent Price. We had The Terror with Boris Karloff. And we also had The Raven and Comedy of Terrors with Vincent Price and Boris Karloff and Peter Lorre. And, of course, Jack Nicholson was in The Raven and he was in The Terror. <laughs> yeah, there's, it was a busy, busy time. We also, of course, to keep things well-balanced, we had crazy mushroom people in Matango, as well as uh, a couple of films from Hammer, but the biggest one for 1963 was Kiss of the Vampire. That's what was happening in 1963 if you weren't going to see Black Zoo. Now, the Black Zoo, or Black Zoo, not the Black Zoo, Black Zoo. Black Zoo. Or, so, as Herman Cohen wanted to call it, Horrors of the Black Zoo. You know, I loved having Rob on, but it was a different dynamic. We didn't really talk about the movies the way you and I just sit and talk about. So I didn't really get a chance to say how much I liked or didn't like. I want to say how much more I enjoyed Black Zoo than that one. In fact, I liked Black Zoo a heck of a lot. What did you think of it? I enjoyed Horrors of the Black Museum. And, and of course, you know, I'm on Letterboxd now and I have to give ratings to movies. I guess I don't have to. You don't have to. <laughs> but I do. And I always struggle with it. And sometimes I will give a rating and then two days later thinking, no, it deserves another half star. Or no, what was I thinking? I'm taking three stars away from it. You know, I fluctuate sometimes in, on movies. Horrors of the Black Museum was not a first time viewing for me. That's something else we didn't really cover earlier mm -hmm. on in the show. I had seen it. 15, gosh, maybe 20 years ago. I don't recall how I watched it. So I do have the Blu-ray now. I really enjoyed it. Black Zoo is something that I've had in my collection for at least about 15 years. I thought it was an off-air recording, but it turned out it was a bootleg copy. Really good print, actually, for a bootleg copy. I enjoyed it. I rated Horrors of the Black Museum like half a star more than Black Zoo. And I'm kind of rethinking this, and I'm thinking maybe I like them equally the same. I definitely don't like Black Zoo more than Black Museum, but I also don't think that I like Black Museum more than Black Zoo. I thought Black Zoo was a tighter film. I thought Black Museum, and Rob talks about it in his commentary, how there'll be action and then they'll just stop for like a talky scene, like at the end when the guy's on the Ferris wheel. You know, he's up there dangling. Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? Cut to the police office where they chit chat for a little bit. Kind of interrupts the action. I, the, a lot of the movies like that. I love the scene of the lady dancing in the bar, but there's way too much time devoted to that. Like her getting to the bar, her walking home. And then as we talk about it. You are correct that there was some definite down moments in Horrors of the Black Museum and, and Black Suit did seem tighter. Uh, I would definitely agree with you there. I guess maybe the one of the things that keeps me from bumping Black Zoo up just a smidge is that the zoo scenes, for example, are all on a soundstage. I don't know. Sometimes that bothers me. Sometimes it doesn't. For some reason, it was 
pulling me out of the moment a little bit in this film. Whereas if I feel like if they would have been filming on a real zoo or if the soundstage would have been set up a little bit differently, like the zoo in Cat People, for example. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm not thinking that's a real zoo. I'm, I'm just, I don't know. I'm trying to think back to that movie if that was real or if that was a, a set. And I want to say it was a set. If it was a set, to me, that seems more realistic. Mm. It didn't seem like a, a stage. I didn't notice that, but you remind me of the one thing that is a big flaw. It didn't bother me. I just thought it was funny. So this is a, a two, three part point here. So one of the reasons I really like this is that it is kind of wackadoo. Michael Goff attends a club of people that love animals and dress up like them and channel their spirits and things like that. And then Michael plays the organ. Another reason, you know, Black Museum didn't have any organ playing maniac, but he plays the organ and he tells his assistant, bring in the children and in the animals march, you know, one by one. Yeah, <laughs> shots the lions lounging on the couch, and you had to wonder: all, are all those animals really there together? And in that scene where they come in to listen to some evening music, they march in one by one. You never see two overlap. They're, but you thought, well, maybe they did just march them in, and you know. Well, but then later when they have the funeral, which is another wackadoo thing, and all the animals are coming in for the funeral. Definitely different cuts. The backgrounds change drastically. One For one animal, there's fog. For one animal, it's brightly lit. Another, it's dark. Another, the camera isn't quite at the same angle as the others. I've got some interesting information on the animals. Ooh, share. There's actually a famous lion, Zamba, 29 creds, wow. including 13 ghosts. He's the lion in 13 oh. ghosts. He was in the Twilight Zone. Lost in Space, Tarzan and the Jungle Boy, Tarzan in the Valley of Gold, which was two of those mid to late 60s Mike Henry Tarzan films. It was also, I think the character's name was Kitty Cat. Six episodes of The Addams Family. He's the lion that they have as the pet. Hmm. Zamba, and there's also Zamba Jr. and Lioness Tammy, they were all owned by Ralph Helfer, who was actually one of Hollywood's most beloved animal trainers. And so some of this I pulled from IMDb, but I'm going to kind of try to paraphrase it as best I can. Early on in his career, animal trainers were very different. They would control the animals with fear. They would use the whips, guns, chairs, everything that you kind of, the stereotypical lion tamer was actually kind of legit. They would try to, to scare the animals into being obedient but that could have a negative reaction sometimes, and that happened on the set of a movie that he was doing some stunt work. Basically, the trainer pissed off the lion, and then, let's go, action! And then the lion sees him, and like, I'm going to take all my frustrations out on you, human. Ends up attacking him, mauling him. He was hospitalized. Comes out of it and says, we've got to change the way we're doing this. This is not humane to the animals. It's dangerous to the people working with them. And so he started to develop a different type of training philosophy that he called affection training. Hmm. Let's treat these animals with love and respect, and they'll be much more docile. 
And I mean, they're still animals. You know, if you if you sit there and and hit them, you're probably going to lose an arm. But treating them with affection and love would make them much more docile and easier to work with. And this made him one of Hollywood's most beloved trainers because people knew he cares for the animals. It's more humane. And the animals are going to be a lot easier to work with and a lot less frightening if you're on a, on a sound stage with this lion who might not be chained up to know that the lion is not going to sit there and attack somebody. He actually ended up owning several attractions in California, Nature's Haven, Wild Animal Rentals, Enchanted Village, Africa, USA, the Gentle Jungle Affection Training School. Mm. In 1972, he bought out Marine World, bringing in aquatic animals, and then kind of merged Marine World and Africa, USA. Eventually sold out to Six Flags in 1998 when the taxes simply got out of control. He's actually still alive. He's 92 now and is now living quite appropriately in Kenya. And I'm going to assume he might not be doing a lot with animals these days, but obviously I'm sure he's doing something close by with animals if he's living in Kenya. It's possible that at least in some of these scenes, some of these lions were actually together because they would have been trained together. I'm going to assume that at least some of the animals in here would do some scenes together. Now, obviously for shots and stuff, you're right. Some of the stuff didn't match up, but I'm wondering if the scene where in the room where clearly you see more than one animal at a time, obviously, that's because of the training that Ralph Helfer did to, to make them more docile and easy to work with. I think Betty White did a show in the 70s that had something to do with animals, and she would call him up because she trusted him. That's how respected he was. People mm. knew him by name and said, yep, yeah, let's deal with him because they trusted how he trained the animals with that affection training. And even Michael Goff's character says that he uses patience and affection to control the animals. Some fact there. Absolutely. I thought that the effects of the animal attacks were really good. A lot of times if a lion or a tiger jumps on someone or an alligator, you know, it's just obviously they're like wrestling around. It's not that they're graphic or gory. You don't see anything, but it just looked realistic. Like the way that everything was positioned. I, I bought it. I thought it was. was well, yeah, good. sometimes you can clearly tell, OK, this is not a real animal. Or unfortunately, and this is probably I think more in the in the early days of film. There's a particular Tarzan film in the late 1920s where they had a scene where Tarzan was fighting a lion. A lion was near death. I forget the movie. I forget the actor playing Tarzan, but it was almost like he was having to like lift the arms. Horrific to think about how inhumane that was, and. I think it was on the set. If I remember correctly, the lion died. Mm. Makes you sick thinking about it because we certainly wouldn't do that today. I know exactly some of the scenes you're talking about, and I thought they were really well done. Now, on the other hand, we have a guy in a gorilla suit. You got to love a guy in a gorilla suit. I thought that was really good. Actually, well done. And I've got some stuff on that. George Barrows played. Oh, is that him? one of Hollywood's leading guerrilla performers. He did stunt work and he did bit parts, which was a little different than some other actors who just did nothing but being the guerrilla. Had 164 credits total. 
he had actually got to know Herman Cohen because he loaned his gorilla suit to him to be used during the filming of Conga. Mm. Got the suit back, and it was not in the best of condition, so he vowed that he would never loan his suit out again. But whatever issues there were were quickly resolved, and of course he got the work in this film. Some of the other films he did was like Hillbillies in a Haunted House, Gorilla at Large, Robot Monster, George Barrow's knew how to act and knew what to do. I mean, yes, it's a guy in a gorilla suit. That's it's obvious that's what that is. But sometimes it's a good it was a good looking suit. I have seen other things where clearly the suit's not as good. It was well done. And I wouldn't say in and of itself it was scary, but he had the most graphic murder, I thought, when he slammed the girl's head into the steering wheel. And not yeah. so much that, but I don't know. It gave the effect that later when they found the body that like you were looking at a pulpy mess from her head getting smashed. That just seemed more realistic. Both of these films were still in the era of the overly bright red blood. It's not super realistic. There's ways to do it. Probably handled better in this film than it was in Horrors of the Black Museum. Yep, I agree. See, I'm talking myself into liking Black Suit more. <laughs> I have a way of doing that to you. You do. Let's talk a little about the comparisons, that, like thematically and particularly the mean-spiritedness of it and Michael Goff's characters in both films' attitude towards women. He's married in this one. Maybe it's a little more frequent. Yeah, strong similarities between the two characters. And as you said, Michael Conrad is definitely ramped up to 11. He seems to like, just have, have a bigger chip on his shoulder in this movie. Volatile marriage, to say the least. Gene Cooper plays his wife, Edna. She's drinking, drinking to survive the marriage. But I think she genuinely loves him and she wants to make him happy. But here he is throwing food on the floor and is just clearly not a nice guy. He treats Carl much worse than Rick was treated in Horrors of the Black Museum. With Rick, there was some mutual respect until Rick decided to find love, and then you're like, you idiot. Women are horrible. They're going to ruin your life. Here, there's just no love for Carl whatsoever. Carl played by Rod Loren. Carl is is essentially uh, mute. He can't speak. It's because we will find later there's been some trauma in his life. Ultimately, though, we never do hear him speak. I thought we might get a moment at the end, and we don't. Well, he did become mute because of the incident, but I I had wondered if something physically happened that wouldn't, but I think it was just psychological. I think, yeah, it was. I'm thinking maybe better days are ahead for Carl when we get to the end of the film. Almost like a mother-son relationship between Carl and Edna. And I would like to think that they stayed together, and she helped him, and uh, that he eventually regained his voice. But Michael Goff is not a, a nice guy in either of these films. In a way, though, I mean, he's a bit more out in the open visually. I mean, in, in the first film, right, I mean, he's dealing with his museum. He's kind of hiding behind closed doors a lot. He goes out. He writes the books. He does. He signs. And it has those moments. But he's not out in the public eye all the time, necessarily. Black Zoo, I mean, people are coming to him all the time. He's running a zoo. He certainly is more charming when he wants to be in this film. He's still on the edge, but there's a bigger facade, I guess, that he's putting on in this one. Speaking of trauma, I think 
I don't normally have this train of thought, but I think one particular scene could be triggering for some people. It's a scene where you hear about it and you've seen it in movies. The husband beats the wife and then turns right around and says how sorry it'll never happen again and kisses. And she pauses, but then she reciprocates and they stand there and make out. And that's a good representation of his character. Maybe because he wasn't married in the first movie, you don't really see that. Kind of sort of get a hint that more, maybe more of a sexual thing, but he never looks at him as, as equals. Never He looks at him as objects. We didn't talk about it, but one thing in Horrors of the Black Museum was the fact that he was handicapped and he walked with a cane. Mm-hmm. And I just kept trying to figure out why. I'm like, oh, they're doing that because they don't want us to think he's the killer, because how can a handicapped person be the killer? And he does kill, but he also has Rick that's doing the killings. In this one, he doesn't have that. I didn't I don't even know that they were trying to fool us, but in this one, there's none of that. It's just pretty clear. Yeah. Another reason I liked this movie more, Elisha Cook Jr. Elisha Cook Jr. brings any movie and makes it better. Star Trek reference number one out of two Star Trek references. We don't really need to say much more about uh, Elijah Cook Jr. We've had him in numerous movies in the last six months. I will just say Samuel T. Cogley, attorney at law. And that's all you need to know. I'd like to talk about Jeannie Cooper for a minute. At first, I thought she was overacting. Like you said, she was drunk. Is it Jeannie or Jean Cooper? She was on... Almost 1,600 episodes of Young and Restless, which I've never watched, but she's been nominated for a lot of awards. In my mind, it's Jeannie, but I don't know that for a fact. You might be right. Now that you mention that, I'm like, I might be. I don't know. She brought energy. That's something I thought Horrors of the Black Museum didn't necessarily have was this energy. And I watched her. and She drew my attention to her. And I just think she was really good in this. She really was. Yeah, she she was a strong character. Early on in the film, she's not strong enough to resist them in the kitchen when they have that makeout scene. But by the end of the film, she's really starting to gain some strength. When she gets an opportunity, her old, I guess, manager of sorts, Jenny Brooks, comes along. Hey, I've got this opportunity for you and the chimps. As we reach the final act and she begins to see Michael for who he really is, she has a strength which you don't always see in the damsels in distress roles in some of these films. Women have much more strength in films now than they used to. Edna was kind of contrary to what we were seeing in these types of films for the time period. So it was a bit refreshing. It's a trope, but it really works. And I think that's why it's a trope is the good person figures out what's going on and they are going to get away, but they can't because the bad guy or the the force is going to get to them before they can do that. So this has that. And I thought that made it more suspenseful at the end. There's the comparisons, right, between the characters of Rick and Carl. Rick, at the end of Horrors of the Black Museum, has his moment, but it's brief. He is a much more weaker character, I think, in, in Black Museum. Even when he's talking to his girlfriend, he acknowledges I don't know. He's almost getting hypnotized, which I guess is where the hypno vista kind of comes into play a little bit. But Carla's submissive in this movie, but I'm getting the feel like he's a stronger character 
and he's just bubbling. But you know that he's going to have that moment like Rick did. And I think Carl's moment was much bigger. If for no other reason is that he survives. Spoiler alert, he he survives. Well, and he's more of a character throughout. They establish this relationship between Edna and Carl. And she's always, well, why can't he eat dinner with us? And, you know, you really should let him go so he can go off to college and, and all of this. So she has a concern. And plus, I think the guy's a really good actor. You can't talk. You got to act with your eyes. You can just tell he hates being there and doing that, but he's like helpless to do anything about it. And may I have the honors and tell the story about Rod Lauren? Do you know what I'm talking about when you did your cast research? I don't. I don't. This is a story. Very, very tragic. He's an attractive guy. Very good looking, nice body. He was born in 1939 in Fresno. As Jeff Owens, young Jeff Owens, he was in school plays and played the trombone. Just had to throw that in there. But he was a singer and he actually had one hit called If I Had a Girl from 1960. He was on the Ed Sullivan Show, Dick Clark. He wasn't in too many movies. He made six low budget films. Three of them were horror. So besides this, he was in The Crawling Hand and Terrified. But in 1964, he went to the Philippines to film a movie called Once Before I Die and he met a woman there, Nita Blanca. She was a rising star in the Philippines and they kind of compared her to Doris Day or Debbie Reynolds. And he stayed there and lived with her for more than, or about a decade. And they finally got married in 1979. Well, fast forward to November 6, 2001, his wife was viciously stabbed to death in a parking garage. Two years later, he was charged with her murder. Authorities claim that he hired an assassin to kill his wife who had threatened to divorce and disinherit him. Now, apparently the justice system in the Philippines was a little dysfunctional and they allowed him to be deported back to the United States without any charges filed against him. So he went back to his hometown near Fresno and he became a camera operator for the local public access television station. But he still felt pressure from the investigation. And finally, it took its toll and he committed suicide on July 11th, 2007 by jumping to his death from a second floor motel balcony. He was 68 years old. Good grief. I I did not know that. Yeah, that's one of those. I don't know. I think that's a terrific. I mean, It's a horrible story, but that's one of those like Hollywood stories you hear about the rise and the fall. And yeah, you never know what's lurking under there. And because of the things that happened to him, maybe he had some of that in his true character or personality. And, you know, maybe we saw some of that peeking out through his eyes. Yeah. His role as Carl. So bring us up. What's a good thing about this movie? (laughs) Jeannie Cooper. She was in Young and Restless. Uh, yes, as well. We're talking to her, we should mention. She did do some horror stuff. Twilight Zone, Thriller, The Boston Strangler. She was in an episode of Kolchak, The Night Stalker. Passed away 2013 at the age of 84. If we want to go something a little bit cheerier, how about another Star Trek reference? Oh, yes. Mariana Hill plays Audrey. She is the girl who is doing the uh, sketch work of the tiger. 
the lovely Dr. Helen Noel in the first season Star Trek episode, Dagger of the Mind. If you're a Star Trek fan, a male fan, you a heterosexual male fan, <laughs> well, actually, I think any fan would be, knows exactly who she is. Probably one of the most sexed up Star Trek characters in, the, in classic Trek. Those skirts were already short, but clearly one of the shortest versions of any any uh, skirt. But she was also in uh, The Outer Limits. She was in Batman and uh, Messiah of Evil. Yeah, so- I just now noticed that. I That name was familiar, so I looked it up, and yeah, Messiah of Evil is probably how I knew her. In the first film, as we're talking about some of the, the cast, we kind of talked a little bit about Michael Goff. We did the Doctor Who connection, but... We didn't mention some of the other films that he did. He's got a lot, a lot of horror cred from this time period. He was in Horror of Dracula. He was in Conga, which I think is probably one of the movies that he's most well-known for today, besides Horrors of the Black Museum and, and Black Zoo. He was also in Phantom of the Opera, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. They Came from Beyond Space, The Crimson Cult. Curse of the Crimson Altar is the alternate title mm. or something like that. Yeah. Trog, Crucible of Horror, Legend of Hell House. He wasn't in it, but his voice was. Modern audiences will know him most as Alfred Pennyworth, appearing in all four Batman films. The the one consistency through all four of those films, Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin. He passed away March 17th, 2011, at the age of 94 of pneumonia and prostate cancer. Michael Goff well-known in sci-fi, in horror, and uh, I guess comic books kind of fall somewhere in, in that vein, too. Virginia Gray played Jenny Brooks, Edna's manager slash friend. Some interesting creds there. She was in Another Thin Man. She was in Tarzan's New York Adventure. I always got to mention Tarzan. I don't know what <laughs> genre it falls in, but it seems like there's bleed over. We've also got her appearing in House of Horrors with Rondo Hatton. She was also in Unknown Island, Target Earth, and Airport. Mm. Jerome Cowan, who played Jerry Stengel, he was the irritating buyer who wanted to buy (laughs) the zoo. I recognized him immediately, having just seen him as the prosecuting attorney in Miracle on 34th Street. Mm. A little bit younger than that. He did lots of TV, lots of character actor roles, but he was also in uh, Fog Island. He was in multiple Blondie films as George Radcliffe. I think he ended up like taking over as Dagwood's boss in the latter part of that film series. Also an episode of Suspense. Another familiar face, I'm sure, for many people was the Chief of Detectives Rivers, played by Edward Platt. Oh, yes. The chief of control on Get Smart. I think if you're our age, at some point or another, you watched Get Smart in the 70s or 80s or maybe even the 60s when it was first on. So you recognize the chief. He was also in, uh, and this actually surprised me how many genre films he was in or appearances, Cult of the Cobra, One Step Beyond, Destination Space. He was in North by Northwest. Episodes of Alfred Hitchcock, Thriller, Twilight Zone, and The Outer Limits. The director of this film was Robert Gordon. Not a lot of creds, 26 credits, but a couple that definitely fit into the genre or bleed over. Guess what? We got a Tarzan film, Tarzan and the Jungle Boy. He also did It Came From Beneath the Sea. 
I had one more cast. I actually I kind of noted this farther down, and it's another Star Trek reference. I don't remember the character, though, in this movie, but Joseph Mel played a character called Frank Kramer. He plays the ball-headed Earth trader in the first Star Trek pilot, The Cage. Uh, the scene where Captain Pike is in, you know, sees Vina, the Orion slave girl. Everyone's attention is on Vina, but he's sitting with a couple of other guys watching the slave girl. And there's a ball-headed trader. Makes you want to sell a man's soul, doesn't it? Definitely enjoyed the movie. And as I'm sitting here talking to you, I now have to kind of flip my thoughts. I think that I'm liking The Black Zoo more than Horrors of the Black Museum. I think both films are good. I enjoy them both. Black Zoo gets a, a notch above. And another reason I liked it, and this is my question for you, and I think you could call it a twist, and I don't know if we want to reveal it or not, but what did you think about that in relation to Carl, his true identity? I think it shows how evil he really was. Spoiler alert, Carl is his son, and he kills Carl's mother in front of Carl, which causes the trauma as Carl is screaming and all of a sudden loses his voice, and that's it. I do think that he gets his voice back. I'd like to think, as the cameras ended, the story continues, and Carl will eventually get his voice back, and I think Edna will play a part in helping him through that. At the end, I almost wanted to see the animals turn on Michael. Mm. They sort of did, didn't he? Because he got pushed back against the cage and one of the animals didn't do anything but leapt up behind him. Yeah, but I kind of wanted to see Carl like throw him into the cage or maybe like he was going to throw Carl in. Carl stops him, pushes him in. And these animals who have treated him with so much respect, for whatever reason, you know, they decide to turn on him. Final thing, I promise. Did you know there was a Black Zoo magazine? It was Horror Monsters Presents Black Zoo, and it was one of those wonderful magazines that has stills from the movie and they tell the story. (laughs) My head is spinning now because of the dark nature of that film. Let's put it in a magazine for children. (laughs) Well, why not? Why not the Black Zoo for kids? Come on. DVD, Warner Archive Collection, it's about the only way you're going to be able to get it unless you find it out there, not on YouTube. Because Warner Archive Collection, they are very particular. If they put something out on Warner Archive Collection, you're not going to find it out there on YouTube or probably even on archive.org. They do a search and they pull those things down. Richard, I've got quite a few movies to list for coming out, and it's not that they're necessarily being released in January when this episode airs, but these are all movies that are available for pre-order. Kino Lorber is re-releasing Burnt Offerings from 1976. It comes out on February 6th. Grindhouse. Oh, do you know about this one? Grindhouse releasing? What it's releasing? No. Impulse with William Shatner. Oh. From 1974, coming out March 12th. I'm trying to think. 
I don't know if I've ever seen that one. Mm. I don't think there's ever been a good copy of it available out there. I think I remember searching and could never find a good copy of it. So that's coming from who? Grindhouse? From Grindhouse Releasing. Interesting. Okay. From Film Masters Tormented from 1960. That's a Burt I. Gordon film. From Studio Canal UK, Horrors of the Black Museum. Um, wasn't it this Blu-ray that started off with the Studio Canal? Oh logo? yeah, it did. You're right. Uh, yeah. I did. I thought that was interesting. I meant to mention it to Rob actually, but I looked at the details on Diabolic DVD, and it does not have his commentary. Our version is better. Also, Devil Girl from Mars from 1954 <laughs> with. Oh, uh, what's her name? Hazel Court. Hazel Court. I assume she is the devil girl, but I love this synopsis. An uptight, leather-clad female alien, armed with a ray gun and accompanied by a menacing robot, comes to Earth to collect men as breeding stock. From Shout Factory, The Terminal Man is coming February 6th. I enjoy that movie quite a bit. You can look on my blog. I wrote about it. And then finally, from Indicator US, the movie Patrick from 1978. That is the Australian movie directed by, oh, I am not remembering names today. It's a good movie. I have a a deluxe DVD version, so I probably won't upgrade, but I I might. It's a good package. Big birthdays in February. Speaking of Hazel Court, she was born on February 10th, 1926. And David Selby was born February 5th, 1941. He, of course, was Quentin Collins on Dark Shadows. And there is a recent episode of Terror at Collinwood with Penny Dreadful that celebrates Quentin's anniversary on Dark Shadows. And she interviews David Selby. Interesting interview, and I recommend it. And we got a Dark Shadows reference in the episode. We, we've had exactly Star Trek and Doctor Who and Dark Shadows Not very often we can get all three. That's all I have for new business. You have already told us what you did on your blog. Do you want to tell us about anything coming up? I don't know. I have anything huge planned for January. I was trying to think, trying to tie into the podcast, and and inspiration hasn't hit me yet. But I do know that within the first week of January, probably as I look at my brand new DC calendar for the year, By the time this goes out, it will be on my blog. I am going to have an article celebrating the 50th anniversary of the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Mm. Probably Friday, January 5th. The actual anniversary date is Saturday the 6th. That's the only thing on my radar as the year starts off. What's on yours? Well, first, I have to say you've hammered a stake into my heart. You, You said something 50 years old, and I'm like, Oh, wow. You know, that was around like in the 50s and 60s. Then you say 1974. 50 freaking years. Dang. I know. I know. That's why I'm like, it couldn't be 50th anniversary of that show. It's like, no, sadly it is. As for me, I very much enjoyed Disaster December. And thanks for allowing us to tie the podcast into that. But... As much as I love disaster movies, that was too many of them to watch in such a short time. 
I sort of went with the angle of the tropes that they have. And, and that was kind of my connecting tissue so that they had a purpose. But yet I just did not imagine watching that many in a row, what it would do to me. Been there, that, done that. And I know, yeah, it's yeah. Like, so, a good idea. But by the time you get to the end of it, you're like, I never want to see another disaster movie again. That coupled with the fact that lately we've been doing more recent, well, 50-year-old movies instead of, you know, 75-year-old. I really want to start the year out going back. And the oldest movie I have that I have not watched was The Mystic on that new Todd Browning set from Criterion. Starting out the year with a silent movie, old 1925. And hopefully I'm going to be in that mode for a while and go back and get some of these true classics that I haven't really been writing about too much. And since I mentioned that we postponed December's theme, we are resurrecting that for February, which is a sweet coincidence. That is my birthday, and you usually let me choose the topic for my birthday. And exploitation is something I would choose any day, whether it's my birthday month or not. You want to tell everyone what we're going to be discussing? Yes, we are covering two more films of the exploitation genre. The first is probably one of the biggest, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte from 1964, starring Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland. You can currently rent this on Apple TV and Amazon Prime, if you so desire, as long as the few other services. If you want to add this to your collection, you could go the Twilight Time Blu-ray route, but you're going to spend about $100. There's a Region 2 Blu-ray, if you have a Region 2 player, from Eureka that goes for much cheaper, goes for about $25. There's also a Region 1 Fox Studio Classics DVD that sells for about $22. Or you can be like me. I recorded it off of movies. Die, Die, My Darling from 1965 is a hammer exploitation film starring Tallulah Bankhead and Stephanie Powers. You don't think Stephanie Powers when you think Hammer Films, but she did a couple of movies. This is currently streaming on Tubi, apparently, mm. so it is out there. You can also rent it on Apple TV and on Amazon Prime, as well as some other services. Or you can go ahead and add it to your collection for a really good price because it's part of the Hammer Films Ultimate Collection Blu-ray set with 19 other Hammer films, you can get 20 films for less than $45. For those of you playing at home, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte from 64 and Die, Die, My Darling from 1965 on Hagsploitation Part 2 coming up next month in episode 93. Anything else? I think that's all I've got. I think so, too. So let's... Sign off. Wish everyone a happy new year. It will already be the new year when you hear this. So I hope you're having a good new year. Thanks for listening. Until next time, farewell. Take care, everyone. Make my world go.